Detroit has a scary reputation, but it's also really interesting and I think people should give it a, more of a chance than they do. Hello and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a podcast looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Denby with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Hello! I hope January treated you well and February treats you better. Did you make any New Year's resolutions? I have to say, never been one for them. I once made a resolution not to make resolutions, and I guess that's the only one I've ever really stuck to. I am aware that's a bit of a cheat, but that's me. While not a resolution, something I didn't keep to was the co-attempt at early morning yoga. As you may remember, I was the accountability buddy for my friend Kate Frankie. I remained her accountability buddy, but I was unable to continue doing the yoga myself. Not out of choice, I may add. See, it was weird. I did parkrun on the 21st of January. Finally, I managed to do my 50th parkrun, for which I got a rather dodgy metallic badge that, though it says 50 on it, does not refer to parkrun in any way. So anyone looking at it might assume that the wearer was, in fact, celebrating their 50th birthday. That point will come. Sadly, not as long as I really feel comfortable with. In my head, I'm a 37-year-old non-binary vibing woman with a whole future of exciting exploration and identity and media in front of me. Whereas I'm clearly none of those things. Except the non-binary identity, obviously. I'm getting a bald patch. I'm irked. Anyway, so yeah, parkrun. The weather was not bad. I didn't feel like I had an excuse, so I felt I had no choice but to finally do it. To do my 50th parkrun that I'd been trying to do since early December. And I had a reasonably easy run. Not quick, and the early 60-something lady I'd been running with the second lap, and who was also running her 50th parkrun, burnt me off on lap three and I couldn't keep up. Just to show you my level of fitness. I did sprint to the finish line, which meant I was a few two seconds too quick to get my 50.0% age grading, which I'd been low-key trying to get for a while, in a continuation of my bang-average parkrun stat aims. I would explain what age grading is, but I'm not sure I can. But, at some point between leaving parkrun and getting home, I started to sense I'd got an injury. There was a pain just above my left ankle, on the inside of my leg. It felt as if someone had whacked me with... You know, and a specific point on my leg even, with something like a baseball bat. I'm fully aware that my combination of dyspraxia and ADHD means there's a fair chance I could have banged my leg without noticing, because that's exactly the sort of thing that happens. I am the sort of person that gets random bruises, scrapes and cuts. But honestly, I think I'd have noticed something that would have caused that amount of pain. At the time of typing up this podcast, some nine days later, I'm still not comfortable walking on it, and it still hurts if I move my lower leg in particular ways. Obviously, therefore, I'm not going to be doing any of the weird stuff that Adrienne does in her yoga sessions. Because she's not human, even if I was fully fit. Equally obviously, I volunteered at Parkrun last Saturday. This upcoming weekend, I'm in Nottinghamshire, going drinking with my friend Tracy. And I had the idea of going back to Sheffield Castle Parkrun, because the buses in England are only £2 per journey at the moment, so it's both cost-effective and convenient time-wise. Plus, Sheffield Castle, the perfect barefoot parkrun. But I suspect that will not be happening. The parkrun, I mean. The drinking still will be. 
obviously. Speaking of parkrun, I recently uploaded to my blog a post all about Queen's parkrun in Glasgow. It's a popular parkrun, because it begins with Q, mainly, so I figured it would be useful to show people what to expect when they come here. At some point, there'll be an associated video on YouTube, but that requires my VA to do the necessary, because I don't do my video editing. And yes, I do even give a shout-out to Barefoot Parkrunners, and note this will come up in a couple of upcoming Twitter Space podcasts in that post, because, again, it's something I think people will find useful. When I'm reading this, I really ought to pay attention to where the commas are. With regards to video, it turns out that the weekend after I'm in Malta with Laura, there's a video creation workshop conference thing called Keyframe, run by the oft-mentioned Traverse organisation. And after much discussions with my VA, amongst others, the feeling was that I ought to go to it even though I'm not much of a video person. Mainly because I'm not much of a video person yet, and part of that is down to a lack of confidence and experience. So the hope and vibe is that by going, I can feel much more confident about using that medium. And on a related note, my VA gave me a task last week to look at everything I do and everything I want to do and try and determine what things are more important to me in terms of very high-level concepts. She was very fond of saying it had to be at the very high level. And she didn't let me crowdsource it because she said it had to be my thoughts. Grumble, grumble. But that said, once I'd managed to find mental time to sit down and write it, it was actually quite an interesting task and it made me realise two things. A. While I like writing, I'm not terribly fond of blogging, as I feel it stifles my creativity in ways that are quite nebulous, but I know them when I try. But also, B, it takes a lot more work to create a podcast episode than a YouTube video. But the only reason it doesn't feel like it is because for the video, I need to block out a fixed amount of time in my head to get down to do it, whereas a podcast can be done in dribs and drabs over a longer period. So, part of my avoidance with video is the same as my avoidance with many things ADHD-related. This needs to take three hours. I don't have the spell slots to spend three hours doing this one thing right now, so I'll do something else instead that takes less than three hours. Listener, they never have the spell slots to spend three hours doing one thing solidly. I do need to sit down and calculate how long it takes to do a podcast episode. I mentioned it in my recent Things I Wish I'd Known Before I Started episode, but I suspect the answer is more hours than I imagine. But speaking of podcast, let's start this episode. Okay, let's begin with a controversial statement. Everything you know about Detroit is wrong. Nothing like setting your soul out from the off, I guess. Well, not everything, but probably your first impression is. Certainly a couple of people I spoke to in Toronto were somewhat confused when I mentioned I was off there, as if to say, why would you want to go there? It's not safe, and, well, rather you than me. But that's exactly why I visit some places, to prove to the world that they're worth visiting. Detroit is one of the biggest cities in the USA, so there must be something to pull you in. Right? It's actually a city whose location I'm familiar with, if nothing else. It's possible Detroit Airport is the airport I've been to the most often in North America, as in a previous lifetime I dated a woman who was at college near Lansing, and Detroit was the easiest airport to use to visit her. But long-time listeners already know about Dana. She's appeared on a couple of my pods before, the ones about neurodiversity and myths and legends. And first-time listeners note that hers was the first voice you heard on this episode, and you'll hear more from her at the end of this paragraph. But with regards to the backstory, as a result of dating her, I got to know her college friends, a couple of whom lived in the Detroit hinterland, and I've passed through the area on several separate visits to visit them. Indeed, back in 2013, I had a couple of hours in downtown Detroit in the company of one of these friends, Cat, before heading off to the satellite town of Royal Oak for a drink. You'll hear a little bit more about Royal Oak later too, not much, but probably more than nearby Southfield, where another one of those friends, Carrie, lived at the time. 
I once caught a greyhound coach from Southfield into the centre of Detroit because it was easier than walking it. The Dana herself gave me a few pointers to Detroit. Fortunately, things I didn't know or hadn't been to. But here she gives a local's view of the city. Say local, she's originally from the nearby city of Port Huron, but that's close enough. So as a Michigan native, you're always kind of aware of Detroit. I mean, I know uh, for myself, for the longest time as a kid, I thought that was our state capital. It's not, by the way. Uh, That would be Lansing. But Detroit is a big fixture of Michigan. I would say it's gone down since the automotive industry has gone more overseas. But it's still a pretty bustling city and it's still well known. I would say maybe not so much as being a thriving city, but it is making a comeback. So, just over four years ago, which sounds like a long time, but remember, Covid insured a year and a half of that didn't really happen, sort of. I was in Detroit for a few days on my own. I'd just spent five days in Toronto meeting up with my Twitter friend Vicky, friend Laura, friend, from Orlando. And I figured Toronto seemed an awfully long way to travel just to spend five days somewhere. Was there anywhere else I could visit nearby that would be interesting? And my gaze naturally fell on Detroit, only five hours away by Greyhound Coach, and thus maintaining my record of not having flown into the USA since 2009. I'm thus one of the few people who's never filled in an Esther, much to the passive-aggressive annoyance of the border guards, who then have to go through the rigmarole of giving me an I-94 visa waiver form to fill in, part of which needs to be handed back when I leave the country. Except that nobody ever wants it because nobody knows what it is at the airports, so I end up throwing them away when I get back to the UK. Anyway, I arrived into Detroit around 6.30pm. It was dark. My Airbnb, a room inside somebody else's house, was about a mile and a bit away. Now, given these circumstances, dark evening, new city, Detroit, coach stations, never in the best of areas, you'd be forgiven for thinking I'd grab a taxi. But no, I walked. Mainly to prove a point, I think. And this is the first thing I'd say about Detroit. It's about personal safety. Risk is relative. At the time, I presented as a 1 meter 90 tall, hairy, middle-aged, middle-class white man. You, well, I know from some of my blog and listener stats, are not. I'm not going to tell you you'll be safe walking through the streets of downtown suburbs of Detroit at night. And indeed, my Airbnb host told me that while she felt the streets were very safe, she wouldn't walk them. All I can tell you is that I was. The main problem here, I think, with a lot of this particular part of Detroit, and it's something that's quite well attested, actually, is that there's kind of nothing here. There are whole blocks of dereliction, abandoned warehouses and factories, demolished plots that now serve as car parks, even basic waste ground, and this gives the impression that the place is more dangerous than it really is. Truth is, there's kind of nobody around at all. Nobody walks in this part of Detroit, so in a strange way, it's safe by default. That is just an initial impression, though. As I walked around the city more over the next four days, I did see sprouts of life. In the area between the Greyhound Station and the Airbnb, for instance, I came across what at the time were two new microbreweries, Detroit Brewing and Batch Brewing, one of which I bought a very apt t-shirt. There's a couple of churches and there's a handful of other businesses. And if you're going to take one thing out of a trip to Detroit, that would be it. This city is coming back. Don't you forget it. One example of this is one of the most iconic buildings of Detroit, both visually and spiritually. And you can see it from my Airbnb. Michigan Central Railway Station, built at the start of the 20th century, but closed in 1988. It's a grandiose building, 13 stories high, rising to about 70 metres. Wikipedia tells me at the time it was the tallest railway station in the world. This is quite an odd title to hold, since railway stations 
by the very nature of railways, tend to be relatively flat. Length and especially width tend to be the titles to aim for. And at its height, boom, boom, served nearly one and a half million passengers a year. Which sounds like a lot, but it's about standard for an outer London suburban residential station. But then I guess we use the trains more in this country. Until recently, it's been a derelict hulk, vandalised, tagged, scheduled for the demolition at least twice. A couple of years previously, however, it had been bought by the Ford Motor Company, which I vaguely mention a few times later, and it's starting to be renovated into prime office space, preserving the look of the building. It would have been cool to have been able to have gone into it, especially given my passion for dead railway stations, a subject I may come on to in a future pod, actually, or at least the idea of post-industrial archaeology. I'm sure there's a better term for that. But uh, alas, everything was closed off and off-limits. I'm not an urbex. Far too dyspraxic for that. My personal observation about the station is it seems to have been an awfully long way out the city centre, about two miles, to be of much practical use. Mind you, it stands just off Michigan Avenue, one of the prime radials coming out of downtown Detroit, heading almost due west, and these days lined with bars, cafes, restaurants and a baseball field. While the site is now used as the home ground of the Detroit police, it used to be a much bigger venue and home to the Detroit Tigers, the preeminent baseball team of the city. When Detroit slumped back in you know, the 70s and the 80s, their sports teams moved out, but they're all now coming back. Baseball is now played at Comerica Park on Woodward Avenue, one of the main arteries, headed almost north towards Royal Oak, and also one lined with bars, restaurants and brew pubs, one of which I spent so long in, I even got a badge from Untapped. I like beer. As for the railway station, a temporary station was built some 20 to 30 years ago on the north side of the city, indeed a couple of miles down the same Woodward Avenue. It consists of a small 1980s brick structure and has precisely one platform. At its height, Michigan Central had ten. At the time I used it, you could catch one of the four or five trains a day here north to Royal Oak and Troy or west to Chicago. There was also a rail replacement service to Toledo in Ohio from where you could pick up trains to Washington DC and all points east. There used to be a direct service, but apparently the residents of Royal Oak objected to trains passing through the town at high speed, so positioned Amtrak to slow them down to such an extent that Amtrak decided it wasn't worth their while keeping the timetable scheduled, so abandoned many of the services. Still, at least the beer's good in Royal Oak, eh? Now, when I came back home and mentioned on Twitter that I'd been to Detroit, the reactions from my tweeps who knew about the place was quite uniform. Not, did you feel safe, of course, but rather, did you see the buildings? To the uninitiated, this may sound like an odd thing to say, but at one point, Detroit was the third biggest city in the USA. It makes sense then that there would have been a large number of building projects in and around downtown. It just so happened this coincided with the Art Deco period of architecture. There are some absolutely stunning examples of this in the wider city, including the Fisher Building just north of the new railway station, which is huge in marble, the Penobscot Building in the very centre, which built at the same time, Looks like it wouldn't be out of place in any of those contemporary black-and-white silent sci-fi movies. And, if you want something a bit more modern, the Alley Detroit Centre, standing nearly 190 metres tall and looking like someone stuck a church organ on top of a skyscraper. Getting around downtown is quite easy. For a nominal fee, on my visit it was 75 cents, it's probably gone up a bit now, you can ride the People Mover indefinitely. I did three circuits. And this is an elevated monorail that loops around downtown every five to six minutes, 
and each loop takes around 17 and a half minutes. It's a great way to see the city from above to get a feel for the size and layout of it. And while I wrote it in 2013, I got the impression that quite a lot had changed in the city, even in the four or five years since then. New buildings, new styles. The People Mover itself is its a loop of about 4.7 kilometres. So it's kind of a shame it's an elevated train because it would make an awesome park run. It was built in 1987, although something along the uh, <clears throat> lines had been in the playing for some 20 years previously, with a series of mass transit ideas being brought forward and then rejected. What helped the construction of Detroit's People Mover was the involvement of a small local business with a history of transportation. But let's be honest, there's not much in the city that hasn't had the involvement of the Ford Motor Company. On its own, it's very much more for tourists than locals, as it covers a relatively small area, and if you're working centrally, it's just as easy to walk across town than catch the People Mover. But for tourists, it's an awesome journey from, you know, you can see much of the city below you from all sides and helps you get a sense of what's here. Obviously, it would be grand if it connected with a decent urban metro and local transport network, but I completely accept the USA is mm, different to Europe in this regard. But this seems like a decent time to bring in the Ford Motor Company. Now, as you may know, Detroit is known as the Motor City, and names like Pontiac, Cadillac and Ford are all associated with it. Out in Dearborn, the town to the west of Detroit itself and on the way to the airport, there's a whole complex devoted to Ford including the Henry Ford Museum and an associated living village, the latter of which closes in winter and the former was just too big for me to justify seeing on my brief visit, but which certainly deserves the best part of a day. Henry Ford may be quite a dubious character in retrospect, but it can't be argued his influence on the city and wider region isn't significant. Dana, however, has had far more time in the area than I have. Another cool Detroit place to go is the Henry Ford Museum and Green Hill Village. Um, it's kind of like two separate things that are, well, the museum is museum. It's a museum. It's indoors. The village is more of an outside exhibit, but uh, the museum features a 4K digital production theater and shows scientific, natural, or historical documentaries, as long as in you know major feature films. Um, it also has some really cool exhibits. George Washington's camp bed, for example. Thomas Edison's alleged last breath, which is sealed in a glass tube. Thomas Edison, also a big Michigan thing, uh, especially for my hometown of Port Huron. Um, we also have the 1961 Lincoln Continental that President uh, John F. Kennedy was riding in when he was assassinated. Along with assassinated presidents, we also have the chair from Ford's Theater that President uh, Lincoln was sitting in when he was shot. On a slightly more light-hearted note, uh, we have the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile, which is, if you've never seen, it's a giant hot dog as a car. So, but um, and that's in the museum. Like I said, Greenfield Village, it's a little bit different. It was... Open to the public back in June of 1933, and it was the first outdoor museum of its type in the nation. So that was kind of a really cool bit of history. But when you go through it, you can see different places that were basically picked up from where they were and transported to the museum, like the Wright Brothers Bicycle Shop and Home, which was brought moved by Henry Ford in 1937 from Dayton, Ohio. Speaking of Abraham Lincoln, the courthouse where he practiced law is set up there as well. Um, there's also a replica of Thomas Edison's Menlo Park Laboratory complex from Jersey. It's just a really interesting museum and 
both the indoor and the outdoor. Uh, definitely recommend it. I went there several times as a kid, loved it, and also, you know, both generally through schools, but also sometimes my parents would take me, and it was just always really, really cool. Now, obviously in general, as befits one of the largest cities in the USA, still, Detroit has a strong historical legacy. Fortunately, the Detroit Historical Museum on Woodward Avenue, not too far from the existing Amtrak station, does a good job in condensing the city's history in an easy-to-follow format over three floors. The basement's highlight is a small recreation of the city streets at various points in history, including the late 19th century, complete with shops and businesses that would have been present at the time, and cobblestone streets, and lighting. It's all quite cool. There's also a large model railway display that I may have spent a few minutes staring at and geeking over. Don't judge me. The ground floor looks at the industrial history of Detroit, including a display that recreates the look and feel of the Ford Assembly Line concept. This is one of the things that made Detroit heavy industry, especially car manufacturing. It became a magnet for many different groups of people looking for decent work. And indeed, even today, one of the things that's notable about Detroit is its myriad of ethnicities. My Airbnb was in an area still called Corktown because of the Irish influence, though these days it's more noted for its Mexican restaurants. Elsewhere in Detroit are enclaves of Eastern Europeans, Africans and Arabs. More about that latter point later. It wasn't just cars that built Detroit, but other heavy industries too. Iron, steel, engines, machine parts, etc. And it led the USA in production of railroad cars and shipping. Indeed, one of the largest at the turn of the 20th century, and one almost never mentioned now, was stoves. Detroit was probably the leading manufacturer of metallic stoves in the USA. Which, I have to admit, it's not an industry I know a great deal about. The rest of the Detroit Museum was mainly dedicated to the prior history of the city, including its foundation by the French. Oh, how history could have been so different. Indeed, the name itself is of French origin, Le Détroit, the Straits, referring to the narrow stretch of water that separates not only Detroit from Canada, but also two of the Great Lakes, Erie and Huron. It was founded by man with subsequently familiar name, Antoine de Nemotte Cadillac, who built a fort here. This fort grew to become one of the largest cities in the French-controlled province of Quebec until the British took it after the badly named French and Indian War ended in 1763. While not part of the original 13 colonies that obtained independence, a few years later, I know nothing about that, the area was ceded to the USA by the British in 1796 in return for, you know, the British only needing to fight the French and not a Franco-American pact that would have jeopardised the Canadian colony. Oh, how history could have been so different etc. Around the museum are quotes and thoughts about the city from times past, including a rhyme popular on the East Coast from the 1820s, which, referring to the fact that it was quite an out-of-the-way place with not much around except swampland, went, don't go to Michigan, that land of ills. The word means fever, ague and chills. Which is nice. And I have been to both Traverse City and the UP. But it also suggests that at that point no one had been to Minnesota and fought with the mosquitoes. Another, probably more typical of most cities in the USA at the time, though, was from a hundred years later, during Prohibition, where it was pointed out by local journalist Malcolm W. Bingay, it was absolutely impossible to get a drink in Detroit, unless you walked at least ten feet and told the busy bartender what you wanted in a voice loud enough for him to hear you above the uproar. It reminds me of that famous, I'm going to call it a meme, but people have said it was cited in their textbooks, of how a Prohibition agent... Izzy Einstein, went around various cities to see how long it took to get him a drink. 
and found that it was usually measurable in minutes, except in New Orleans, where on arrival he took a taxi and asked the driver where he could get a drink, and the driver said, right here, and handed him one. It must be said, however, Detroit's very location made it a convenient place for smugglers and bootleggers, since Canada is, you know, just over there. Indeed, this wasn't the first time being so close to the Canadian border meant Detroit was an important place to be, but more of that later. In addition, there's a series of display panels talking about famous historical figures from the city, including inventors George Hammond, rail refrigerator wagon, allowing easier transportation of fresh goods, and Elijah McCoy, prolific, but most noted for an automated lubrication device for steam locomotives. And yes, it was so good, people started referring to it as the real McCoy as opposed to any of his competitors' products, hence the popular phrase. So the story goes. Anyway... On my visit, there were two parts of Detroit's history the museum dedicates specific parts to. One was the riots in July 1967. This is obviously a part of history I know nothing about because I'm British and they don't teach this stuff in school. Also because I went to school, it wouldn't have been history, but that's a minor point. And also being British, why would we have learned about Detroit? As such, remember I'm a complete outsider, so what I'm about to say may well be a very high-level elementary school version that misses out a lot of nuance. But the reason I'm mentioning it at all, given that pretty much every city has had significant riots... I lived in Liverpool when the 81 Toxteth riots happened, though not in that bit of Liverpool. It's because the 67 riots in Detroit were much more significant for Detroit than your average riot. And it started with the couple of policemen raiding an illicit bar. That's not true. They started with the background of the 1960s, and especially the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King gave a speech here in 63 that was one of his most famous and significant, and for reasons I'll go into very shortly, Detroit has always had a significant black population. The actual police raid was on an unlicensed bar. 82 people were present and the police decided to arrest them all. A crowd gathered outside and became rowdy. A bottle was thrown. There was a scuffle. The crowd, which at the start of it was generally considered as mixed race on average, as in both white and black, moved along and started looting. What followed were about five days of riots, looting and burning, the largest civil unrest in the USA for nearly 100 years. There are far more and better overviews of analysis of the riots out there, including, obviously, evidences of police brutality, specifically but not limited to an incident at the Algiers Motel which saw police kill three, injure several and get away with it. But I'm mentioning it partly because it's seen as an important watershed in Detroit's history and one of the reasons the city has the reputation it does amongst people. Because, you know, that's what they were brought up knowing about the city. That was the big event of the city at the time. And also because of the concurrent and subsequent closure of many of the traditional industries due to amongst other things, general world economics, meant that many people's impressions of Detroit are of a city where, after the riots, everybody who could afford to leave left. And what was left ended up as a cultural and industrial wasteland. Except it isn't. And that impression itself is partly caused by a background level of racism. See, the other notable part of Detroit's history mentioned in the National Museum, but noted in more detail in the nearby African-American Museum, is its role in the era of slavery. The African-American Museum itself is a very thorough and detailed walkthrough of the history of Africans and Africa as a whole, the slave trade and the modern era, and how the role of Detroit was quite pivotal in that. Obviously, the industrial legacies of the city provided the reason why so many African-Americans came here. Indeed, the Ford Motor Company were one of the leading lights in integration. But of course, a century earlier, in the days of slavery, Detroit was known by the code word of midnight. As the last US city that refugees from the slavery states would have to pass through before escaping to free Canada, Detroit was a very popular destination on what was colloquially known as the Underground Railroad. 
logistics that were set up to allow escaping slaves to flee the country. The name Midnight came about because it was deemed easier to cross from Detroit to Windsor in Canada, a distance of less than a kilometre over the water, under the cover of darkness, as in at midnight, so it was harder to spot you. In truth, the hard part was getting to Detroit in the first place. As a free state, the locals were generally more than willing to help and harbour escapees despite the laws at the time. The museum goes into this in far more detail than a simple podcast produced by British White NB ever could. The museum also celebrates African-American culture and performing arts, with displays around dance and theatre, and how people have used their heritage and skills to tell their stories and to try and change the world to be more accepting. Remember, knowledge is power, and people are often scared about what they don't know, and have never come across. Such displays not only include examples of African-American textiles and performance, but also stained glass representations and memorials to many famous figures from African-American history and culture. One such was the subject of one of the temporary exhibitions that most museums have, and I mention it here because it's important. At the time of my visit, there was a small exhibition on Aretha Franklin, arguably one of the most famous and notable people to emerge from Detroit in recent times. She'd recently passed away, and this was a way of honouring her, with the story of her life and displays of some of the clothes she'd worn on the stage, and all manner of other things that I didn't know. It was very intense and powerful, I must say. One of the most popular musicians of all time, but then equally just one of the many from the period and the time. Detroit is a city noted for music and has spawned such diverse acts as the White Stripes, Madonna, Alia, who today I learnt was herself the niece of pop stalwart Gladys Knight, and technically Alice Cooper, though we roast her musical success in Arizona, of all the different places. We're going back to Gladys Knight for a sec. She and her group, The Pips, were one of the many notable artists associated with the music that probably defines the city of Detroit the most. Motown. I mean, y'all know Motown, right? You'll all have heard of the record label that defined an entire genre of music. So obviously I'd heard of Motown, but even someone born as long ago as I, I always associated exclusively with the past, 1960s pop and soul, music from before I was born. As it happens, the label still exists. They're part of the Universal Music Group, uh, based in Santa Monica, California now, and one of their leading lights is now the R&B megastar Neo. But yes, Motown, as most people know it, is indeed very much 1960s Detroit. It was founded in 1958 by Berry Gordy, originally as Tamla Records. The Motown moniker was added two years later, from Detroit's nickname as the Motor City. As an aside, they were two different labels. The Motown organisation as a whole owned and ran several different record labels, in name only, for <clears throat> administrative reasons. Uh, they all used the same HQs and recording studio, but Gordy's loophole abuse of the broadcasting industry is beyond the scope of this pod. He'd bought a house in 59 on the north side of the city and converted a part of it into a small recording studio, so essentially he worked from home before it was cool. This house became the base for Motown for much of the 60s until he moved to LA, partly as a direct result of the 67 Detroit riot. The building is colloquially known as Hitsville, USA, after the sheer dominance the Motown label had in pop music, most of which was recorded here. Now, Barry's older sister Esther didn't move, staying at home there, and a little under 20 years later, she turned it into a museum. And though it's not a huge building, it's quite impressive what you can see inside it. Obviously, there's still a whole array of photographs, costumes, documents from the period, etc., but that's not the main draw. The tour takes you into Barry Cordy's apartment and the label's offices, so you can see exactly at first hand how he lived and worked, complete with period displays. There's also an overview of many of the artists who recorded here, which is a veritable who's who of iconic pop. You know, think Stevie Wonder, The Supremes, Marvin Gaye, The Four Tops, The Temptations, and of course The Jackson Five. But not Aretha Franklin, surprisingly. 
her manager-stroke father turned them down because he felt they were too new and not big enough for her. To be fair, this was 1960, and I guess with hindsight neither party suffered badly from that rejection. However, the big draw is a visit to Studio A, the actual room where these artists made their music. There's the original instruments and recording equipment here, so you can literally see and feel how it would have been to step into the metaphorical shoes of the people you grew up listening to. There's even a worn shoe print on the floor as the producers kept the beat by tapping their feet. How they must have felt recording and being recorded, and what it was like for the sound engineers and the producers too. It's actually quite something to be so close to history, something you don't get quite get a vibe for in many similar places, where you might you know, only see things through windows in closed doors. Here, you can literally walk up to a microphone and start singing. I did not do this. Nor did I play on the famous Motown grand piano used by the Funk Brothers backing session band on many of the Motown hits. The tour guide said that one previous Englishman on a tour had indeed done that, but I suspect you can get away with a lot of things when you're Paul McCartney. African-American culture isn't the only one to have its dedicated museum in the Detroit area. Reveling in the diverse makeup of this city, another ethnicity to have its own museum is the Arab diaspora. Nearby Dearborn, again, on the way to the airport and the Ford Museum sites, hosts what may well be the only Arab-American museum in the USA. It was opened in 2005 and serves both as an actual museum for the general public and as a library of resources, literary, oral and artistic, for researchers and historians. The museum is divided into several sections, and the entryway on the ground floor is a large open marble-floored area filled with Arabic tiling and geometrical patterns. There's a dome above it, and the whole thing is designed to have the vibe of a mosque or other type of Arabic building. It contains several sections. One, mainly centred in the entrance hall, explains what being an Arab means, including an overview of the Arab world, quick uh, summary of Arab achievements and innovations, especially around medicine, mathematics and astronomy, and examples of typical Arabic musical instruments. The other sections of the museum are all largely made up of walk-in dioramas and information boards depicting different parts of the Arab-American immigration journey and displays of items owned by immigrants. One shows the journey of immigration to the USA and how it's changed over the centuries, including where people come from, how people immigrate, and why they choose to leave their home countries and come to the USA in the first place. Many reasons for this. We won't go into those. Another looks at immigrant life in the USA what they did when they got here in terms of work and home life, etc., how they lived and where they lived. There's also information about how they maintain their Arabic heritage in their new country. Unsurprisingly, there's a lot of food in this section, but also information about the businesses they ran, etc. The final segment is dedicated to individual Arab Americans who have made an impact on the local, national or international stage. Examples I seem to have taken pictures of include Dr. Abdallah E. Najjar, who was instrumental in the fight against malaria in the post-World War II period, and Rana El Kaliubi, who created and developed an app which recognises emotions in faces by tracking minute changes in facial expressions. Wikipedia tells me that Dearborn itself is the city with the highest proportion of Muslims in the USA, but it doesn't tell me how many. A quick search brings up a Medium article from 2017 which suggests it's just under 30%. It does have the largest mosque in the USA, though, which seems fitting. Also, just over 40% of the population of Dearborn in the 2010 census self-defined as having Arab ancestry. It seems many of these are specifically Lebanese, so it's befitting the last meal I had in the area before catching my flight home was at a Lebanese restaurant a couple of doors down from the museum. Rice, yogurty chicken and salad. Nice. 
Another satellite town of Detroit is the previously mentioned Royal Oak. It's north of Detroit, beyond the famous Eight Mile Road, which is the only time I'm going to reference that in this pod. On the edge of the Royal Oak is Detroit Zoo. I'm noting this not because I've been there, but because Dana has. And there are several places in Detroit that are really interesting. One of them is the Detroit Zoo. It was always a staple for me growing up as a family trip we would take normally once a year to go to the zoo. Um, Schools also obviously will access the zoo. I remember it was always a big trip um, that we would take now and again. It was always a very special treat. It's situated on about 125 acres um, of naturalistic exhibits, and it's home to more than 2,500 animals representing 235 species. It was also the first zoo in the United States to use barless exhibits extensively. So it's always really cool to visit. I highly recommend the penguin exhibit. I don't know if they still have it as it was when I was a kid, because obviously that was 30 plus years ago. But you would go into like this building, it was very cool, and you could see the penguins swimming and diving. It was always just really cool. My knowledge of Royal Oak consists primarily of several pubs, obviously, which I was taken to by our mutual friend Kat, who lived in the area at the time, and a huge thrift store. And a railway station, which we both used once to catch a train to uh, Detroit. We were heading to Philadelphia to meet with Dana, but we were catching the rail replacement bus to Toledo first before an overnight train to Washington, D.C. One day, might do a podcast on trains. As you might have gathered, Detroit is a place where I can definitely grab a decent beer or two. It's also a wonderful place for street art. I think it's all connected. I mean, I'm not saying Detroit is an upcoming hipster city, though it is. And I must be said the couple of days I spent in Seattle the previous year were also very pleasant for very similar reasons. As an aside, conversely, I found Portland, Oregon to be a tad overrated and a bit pretentious. But back to Detroit. Large murals and street art to be found all over the city, if that's your thing, especially on the way down Michigan Avenue, in fact, and near to the Michigan Central Railway Station. Street art is the subject of an upcoming pod, though, so I'll talk about it more there. So, Detroit. A lot of history. A lot of culture. Bad reputation caused by things in the past, but definitely a city in its post-industrial phase. Actually, similar to Glasgow, but with less consistent weather. In 2015, Detroit was designated a UNESCO design city, a designation for cities around the world which are noted for their design and culture industry. You'd think architecture, urban planning, public spaces, that sort of thing. And where creative design industries like interiors, fashion, jewellery, but also sustainable environment and urban design are central to their vibe. There's only 40 in the world, and Detroit is the only one in the USA. For the Brits, there is one in the UK, and we could sit here for hours playing that game and you still wouldn't get it. Ditto for Australia. I really enjoyed my time in the city, and I could certainly see an appeal for me there. It's never loaded as much as neighbouring Chicago, despite having so much in it that would appeal to tourists and visitors with all kinds of interests, from music to museums, sports to street art. I'd say leave your prejudices at the airport and come visit. And if you don't like it, I mean Canada's literally just over there, but why would you want to do that, eh? Well, that's about all for this episode. Join me next time for another adventure beyond Beyond the the Verge. Until then, remember... You heard it through the podcast of Ein. And if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. 
The theme music is Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Previous episodes are available on your podcast service of choice, and show notes are available on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, tweet me at rtwbarefoot, email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com, or look for me on Instagram, Discord, YouTube, or Facebook. Uh, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter, and if you really like what I do, you can slip me the cost of a beer through my Patreon in return for access to rare extra content. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Bye for now.